0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. Hello and welcome to episode 403 of Writers Aloud. In this episode, Penny Boxall speaks with John Greening about poetry as igniting little moments of history, poetic inspiration as a gap that you feel yourself into, goers and duds her move into other genres such as children's historical fiction, and her advice for young writers.
1: Penny Boxall was born in 1987 and grew up in Aberdeenshire and Yorkshire. She holds an MA in creative writing from UEA, but her parallel career has involved working in museums, from the Wordsworth Trust and Shandy Hall to the Ashmolean, experience she often draws on in her writing. Her first poetry collection, Ship of the Line, drew considerable praise when it appeared in 2014 and was reprinted by Valley Press four years later, along with a second collection, Who Goes There? Her most recent book is In Praise of Hands, a creative collaboration with the artist Naoko Matsubara, published in 2020 by the Ashmolean Museum. It was her debut, however, that won her international recognition when *Ship of the Line* received the highly prestigious Edwin Morgan Poetry Award, one of the UK's biggest poetry prizes. Other honours include the Mislexia PBS Women's Poetry Prize in 2018 and a 2019 Northern Writers Award. Penny Boxall also writes fiction for young people, and was shortlisted for the Ashett Children's Novel Award in 2020. She recently received an Arts Council grant for the development of her latest work in that genre, which is set in the 18th century. Penny Boxall has been a Hawthornden Fellow, writer-in-residence at Cove Park, Gladstone's Library and the Chateau de Lavigny in Switzerland, as well as a visiting research fellow at Merton College, Oxford. And here we are in York, uh, Penny's home, talking together, and it's a delight to be here. So York is home, but you're... Are you more of a Scottish writer, really, would you say?
2: Well, I mean, I, I suppose in some way I feel Scottish in the sense that it very much influenced my my growing up. I grew up in Aberdeenshire from the age of one. My parents were English, but the kind of experience of, of Aberdeenshire seems to have sort of settled into, into me in, in some way. My dad still lives there. And... I think you know in in Aberdeenshire there's a tradition of live music and poetry, and it's quite sort of integrated into the kind of evening scene. And I think that was something that I definitely imbibed when I was growing up.
1: So, do you look to the Scottish literary tradition as well? Do you feel that you're part of that tradition, and Kathleen Jamies and and, and others that they influences on you, or
2: I'd like to think so. Mm. I, I think probably it's more to do with an interest in image and landscape image than perhaps to do with language. But I think that, yeah, that tradition definitely informs my work. But I also feel, you know, actually very much a British poet. I think there's a lot of of English work that goes into my writing and I, I'm sort of quite... I'm quite tied to countryside in various ways. I think that's something that's, that's been quite an influence on me
1: yes, all my that, life yes that's funny i was just reading some of your poems again in the in the train here and there's one about moles isn't there i was reminded of ebben blunden and indeed john Clare. it's a very english tradition to write about moles hanging on fences and that lovely yeah. poem i can't remember what it's called now but it's, it's, a, it's a lovely poem about, about i can't
2: remember what it's when called when <laughs> <London>. <laughs> um, yeah no it's um it's definitely something that it sort of these, these images that come to you, often quite strange images, mm. I think, in the countryside, mm. something that juxtaposes a, a strange visual in a particular context, I think definitely spark something for me. Mm. And also because, you know, I think moving as a baby to um, Aberdeenshire and then as a young teenager to Yorkshire, I think I've always been alive to these contexts and kind of noticing things that take on a slightly different nuance in, in various places. Hmm. So I think that's that's all fed into the kind of interests that I have in, yeah. in my writing. Yes.
1: Of course, the Edwin Morgan Award, Edwin Morgan, great Scottish poet. Did you ever see him? He I didn't, did? no, 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 sadly, no. And hmm. So what was the effect of winning that extraordinary prize Of have won?
2: Yeah, I mean, it was just a huge validation. I was utterly flabbergasted to, to win it, and... I think it just gave me confidence to try something new because it felt like just a big yes from someone and that, that really did feel wonderful. And it just let me relax, actually. It, it allowed me to um, do some travelling and just not worry immediately about the next paycheck. <laughs> and that is enormously freeing. And, you know, that travel is often what sparks ideas for writing. So, you know, I've, I've produced a lot of poems since then. Who Goes There was produced sort of after the Edwin Morgan. And, you know, I have a couple of collections which are pretty much finished sort of subsequently as well. Mm. So it's, it's just about freedom and relaxation, I think, which, yes. yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't be more grateful for it, really.
1: So Ship of the Line... I'm- Why that title?
2: Well, it went through many iterations. (laughs) I had a lot of interest in 18th century naval history that Uh I like to kind of use for my own purposes. I'm not a particularly accurate historian in lots of ways, but I like to take images from history and and sort of think myself into them and unpack them a bit to kind of bring that experience alive. So there are quite a few naval or, or seafaring poems in that collection and... Honestly I just spent a little time on Wikipedia on a list of nautical terms and I thought oh that one actually sounds really quite quite nice mm. and it also saved it from a much more terrible title, which you know I'd previously thought was the best one. So oh, <laughs> we, all, we all have those. Yeah. Yes, the
1: titles that never, yeah. never happened. So what what is it draws those poems together? Travels in there. You mentioned. I mean, how how would you I mean, give us some idea of what's in the book? Really.
2: Yeah, I think as you mentioned, I am a museum's professional in in some way, and I think I've always been interested in the way that objects can sort of spark stories, and you can have little glimpses of the past through them tangible sort of senses of the past but you can't actually interpret them in a total way you you can only bring a certain slant of the light to them so for me that first collection was a sort of synergy of of poetry and, and museums for the first time for me where I felt like I was yeah sort of igniting little moments of history and as I say they're not necessarily accurate that doesn't really bother me in lots of ways i think it's more about that kind of little impulse of life that you can bring mm. when you examine an object in a slightly unexpected way i suppose
1: mm. it's a wonderful job to have i mean some some jobs feed naturally into poetry don't they mm. with, with sometimes actually handling an object or reading about something that you're, that's going into the collection will spark, spark a poem. How do you know when that's happening? How do you know when something's going to turn into a poem?
2: There's this sort of resonance, and I think that that's, that's the almost when my mind goes blank and <laughs> I need to reach for my phone or a notepad or whatever and just write down a few words. And it's it's kind of about the gap that is created, and I feel myself into that gap. So when I talk about blankness, I suppose it's about knowing that between these two things there is something... And I need to write into that space. Oh, so nice. yeah, it's kind of I, I, it's kind of more more space than it is an object in its own right. I yeah, think.
1: Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah. And talking of space, have there been spaces where you couldn't write, and and how do you feel about that? How do you cope with that?
2: Yeah, um, the bus. <laughs> when I was working in London, I, I commuted by bus from Oxford, mm. and it took sometimes two and a half hours each way. And I thought maybe I'll, you know, manage to write during that time. And I couldn't at all. It was utterly dead time because I couldn't even really read on the the sort of jerking coach. So, yeah, that's not at all conducive. No, no. (laughs) So being stationary um, seems to be... (laughs) A prerequisite.
1: Do you compose in your head at all? Or is it pencil and paper or laptop or what? It's
2: always laptop, actually. So Mm. most often I'll I'll write a few notes on my phone, Mm. which always feels quite sort of inelegant, And especially when I'm interested in the past. I sort of have this quite uneasy relationship with technology. So I write a few notes and then I always go immediately to the laptop. And I like the fact that it looks impersonal and it looks... A tiny bit at arm's length from the, the original thought, mm-hmm. and also the ease of editing. I like to change it as I go. I'm, I'm mm-hmm. not a smooth writer. I feel like I will do a first pass where I'll sort of put the scaffolding in, mm-hmm. and then I'll go back, and that's when I put the I don't know what comes next, the the bricks, and then yes, <laughs> the yeah. pointing, and you know, it's sort of it's it's various passes
1: through the poem. So does that scaffolding include the form? I mean. I, there's quite a variety of forms in the in, uh, Ship of the Line, but is there a particular form you favour? Is there a, a default form? I, I mean, for example, I always find I sort of, anything I'd start to write is, it seems to be an unrhymed tersit, then it turns into something else. But, yeah. you know,
2: um, I tend to start off with just the line breaks and, and no sort of stanzas particularly, yeah. but often I, I do find I'm interested in couplets. I think there's mm. a lot that can be done with, again, those, those gaps and the way that you're... I suppose it's exactly the same thing I was just describing about using museum objects that you mm. have a thing and another thing and between them there's a sort of space that creates something else that's yeah. where the kind of um, ignition can happen yeah. I think so I, I do I do love couplets but it's something that comes in the process of writing and drafting I feel like I'm, I'm much more confident with line breaks to start off with mm. and then the form will sort of be sculpted out of the block
1: I think yeah. Other other poets that you can safely sort of read to, to get yourself going? I mean, some poets, I it's, it's dangerous to read. You know, the Ted Hughes and D.H. Lawrence's, great the Sylvia Plaths, they sort of influence one so much. But other poets that you can read that will sort of get you going with the writing?
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point. I think there are some poets I know I must, Avoid, um, because no matter how much I love their work, I'll I'll be writing pastiche, and that's just not helpful. I mean, an, an old love is Larkin, and I think there's uh, a kind of aspiration there. I, I know it's probably fairly unfashionable now, but I, I think the way he handles turns is just really, really interesting. So, yeah, I, I find him quite helpful to read.
1: refreshing to hear. I mean, I think he's the most masterly of poets. Would you think a successful book of poems has to have something strange about it, an element that sort of remains inexplicable?
2: Mm. Well, I was thinking about this recently with children's fiction, and someone wisely said that quite often titles have to have an element of irony to them, Mm. um, and that's what will spark the reader's imagination. So, A book titled The Ascent of Gravity, for example, will be much more intriguing than one that isn't, but something something more literal. In poems, I do like poems that keep a little of the mystery of composition intact. Mm. So I'm not so drawn to those which are hand-holdy. I like the ones which let you step off the edge.
1: Because you have a few notes, don't you, for in The Ship of the line. I, that was an interesting one. For example, I read the one about the Battle of Trafalgar, not realising it was about Trafalgar. Mm. And you get quite a lot from it. And I sort it deduced it was a sea battle of some kind. And then you gave me the note to say that. It's always a tricky one, isn't it, whether mm. to give that note or not, or, or
2: uh, yeah.
1: I don't know, it's an epigraph or something like that.
2: And I think but increasingly, I'm, I'm moving away from that, actually. Mm. I feel mm. the poem probably needs to work on its own yeah. terms yeah. for
1: yeah. me. Yeah. 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 But um, people perhaps who don't read much poetry sometimes say, well, I would have liked some notes. Mm. <laughs> it's not always the way. So I'm interested whether you revise much. Is it, are you one of these obsessive revisers, sort of? <laughs> or is it uh, sort of there in no, one go?
2: I think I tend, for better or worse, to spend quite a long time actually creating the poem in the first instance. But then either it works, or it doesn't, and I very rarely successfully salvaged a poem which doesn't have that resonance that I want in them. So it feels like, yeah, I, I can construct it and then it's either a goer or a dud.
1: And are there a lot of casualties? I mean, do you have uh, uh, what sort of proportion? Increasingly,
2: uh, actually, yeah. Right. <laughs>
1: yeah. And will you go back to something from five years ago or something and, and, and work on it? Or are they done? when they're? Never... I
2: never have. Maybe I should. Um, I think it's just that maybe the excitement and the interest that led me to sort of put a poem together in the first place... If it's gone, then I feel the poem's gone with it. So mm. I either try to capture that excitement in a poem, or, or it's it's yeah, it needs to sort of go. And it was it was more of a an experience than something that I w- want to record.
1: Mm. And then the issue of the I do do you use the first person a lot, and is it usually mm. you? <laughs> uh,
2: almost never originally. Yes. Yeah, I, I used to use we um, mm. quite a lot, but I I felt very very shy about using I. I think partly because I'd always been very wary of being an embarrassing teenage poet, which was something I was told, you know, everyone went through a stage of, of being. And I think I was, but in, in in a different way, a non-confessional way. I think I was, I was interested in kind of, well, I've always been interested in voicelessness. I, w- I was quite late to speak. And I think I've always been quite sort of reserved, relatively reserved. So I think it started off as um, a way to circumnavigate that. If I wasn't writing in my own voice or anything that could be mistaken for my own voice, then it felt safer and also that I could explore a subject more thoroughly, keeping it at arm's arm's length. But I am playing with it much more now, um, Mm. either through sort of using versions of my own experience that, I feel more comfortable presenting under an eye speaker because it's okay. It's art. It's it's artifice. It, yeah. it, you know, I've kind of finally let go of the fact that of, of the idea that everything has to be you know directly drawn back to me. And I also think it it lends a lot more possibility to to poems as well. This kind of tension between what we think we're reading and what we might actually be reading.
1: Quite, it's good. Yes. So. Who Goes There, 29 Poems. How how does that collection differ or develop? I mean, is it a sequence? Is it more experimental? It's a slimmer volume, isn't it?
2: Yeah, I think it feels like it's it's a collection of voices rather than a collection of hmm. objects. In both, there are objects and people, but Who Goes There feels more masky and more more full of character, I suppose. I felt like I was beginning to take a few more risks maybe and again sort of using voices which have an element of truth but aren't factual yep. and yep. yeah sort of yep. blurring the lines i suppose between yep. um fact and fiction the, su-
1: the subject matter is always fascinating in your poems again that's a larkin thing actually and it was about something something interesting for example there's one in who goes there about a stumbling on a film set in Oxford. It? Mm. So again, they've all got this narrative hinterland, haven't they, and the accompanying story. I just wonder whether you would say one of your aims is to shatter prejudices and stereotypes. So the poem, is it Workbox, where the fisherman turns embroiderer? Yeah. That, that seemed to be a sort of characteristic interest, of, of, You're of looking at things in, in that, that unexpected way.
2: Yeah, I don't know if it's an aim so much as an obsession. <laughs> it's <laughs> of kind of, that's one way to... Slant the light off things in ways that you don't quite expect. So yeah, it's sort of like I feel like it's it's one of those sort of mirror mazes where you've got things that you don't expect to see, kind of periscoping towards you. That's what I like to do, sort of redirecting the light. I think.
1: There's a prose poem. Is it Operation Mincemeat? Is it? What do you think of the prose poem? Are you a prose poem uh, enthusiast? It's
2: it's not something I've felt particularly confident with actually yeah. for much of my life um and actually in that poem I, I didn't quite commit I didn't have the confidence to make it a pure prose poem it's sort of indents as you go through you know, I was hedging my bets a bit there I think. Yeah, yeah. I admire a lot of them but I don't know if I've I haven't written very many mm. I think because I do love this I love gaps mm. in, in poems so I sort of feel a little bit panicked when I think, but where where are the gaps going to be, you know, in this in this poem and yeah, it's not a form I've particularly used very much right. but it felt like it was right for that poem because it was dealing with sort of again, blurrings of fact and fiction and also the kind of ephemera of lives so it felt like it needed to be a little bit more diary-like or letter-like somehow.
1: Yes. Yes. Then This wonderful, more recent book, In Praise of Hands, which I wish we could show people, but uh, perhaps you could describe it to us and tell us a bit about the book In Praise of Hands, which the Ashmolean published.
2: Yeah, it's a collaboration between me and the woodblock artist Naoko Matsubara, and she created this series of prints called In Praise of Hands, which she created over 40 years And they each depict hands engaged in some activities. Some are playing musical instruments, some are dancing, some are gardening. Really beautifully, the whole project started with watching her her baby son's hands and marvelling at them. And so it became quite a preoccupation for her. And in, I think, 2018, she donated over 100 prints to the Ashmolean, including this series. And she likes to work with poets. So I believe that um, Robin Skelton had mm. begun this project and... Um,
1: Canadian poetry. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah.
2: And it, it wasn't finished. So the Ashmolean, knowing me, have you know, I'd, I'd worked there for a few years. So Claire Pollard, the um, keeper of the Japanese collections. That's no,
1: not Claire Pollard the poet. No, it's not. No, no
2: but she... Uh, yeah, also Claire Pollard. She got in touch and asked if I'd like to have a go mm. um, writing poems for this series. And I was really happy to to do this because it's obviously exactly what I like to do and I wanted to let the prints speak I didn't want to be too prescriptive in the poems so I went for often quite short poems I probably went for clear visuals or tried to that kind of complemented the images because I I didn't want to sort of send people in, in certain directions when I feel that the images are quite open often and also, that I felt that I wanted to make them quite joyful poems. Hmm. The prints are joyful, and I think that was quite, that was its own challenge in a way as well. You know,
1: your poems are not quite sort of haikuish, and they're not they're sort of closer to epigrams. Sometimes, yes, they? Or, yeah. or, or sort of middle ground, really. And, and rhyme is in there as well, isn't it? Yes, it, uh, yeah, which isn't so common in the the other or am I wrong in
2: No, them? it's it's not. And it was just something that felt right for this sequence because I suppose there's a kind of rhyme between the image and what's depicted and between the poem and the image. And mm. that's how they sort of started to come out. And mm. um, I, I just went with it really.
1: So this was written during coronavirus or published during the coronavirus? I wrote yeah, it out,
2: right. in well, the bulk of it in 2019, when I was at Merton. And then the project sort of continued through 2020. Mm. And actually, quite movingly, Naoko said she wanted to create a woodcut to go with one of my poems Mm. as the last in the series. And I had lost my mother um, in 2020, so I wrote a poem for her, and Naoko created this beautiful woodcut. Mm. And so the, the sequence and the book are sort of bookended ended by images of mothers and and children, hmm. and it's so it' sort of created this really lovely arc
1: wonderful yeah would they work without the pictures? I mean, wonder in a future selected whether you'll be able to reprint them um without without the images would they work? um
2: I hope that stand up. I mean I think they're designed to go with the images Mm. so I think there is this kind of conversation between the Mm. two that Mm. that would obviously be lost without the images
1: Um, Surrendous um, book, just just as a physical object and the poems uh, glorious too. Someone also do an anthology of poems about hands because there's lots of great poems about hands, tattoos. mm. So forthcoming collections, other projects, tell us us what's going on. We haven't even talked about your your fiction, tell us a bit about what's going on and things you've got in mind.
2: Well in terms of of poetry, I've, I'd say, completed um, a new manuscript, mm-hmm. which is to do, I think, with light and dark, mm-hmm. and there is a sequence in that about the loss of my mother, which is, again, as as we were talking about, very different subject matter for me, um, mm-hmm. but it felt quite vital for me to do that in lots of ways. So I think the collection is about about loss in, in various ways. Mm-hmm. Um, it's sort of about objects missing it's about missing people and so it's the way I've structured it is to move from light to dark in terms of how much light there is in the poems I hope it's not as bleak as it sounds I think there is hope in it as well Hmm. and I've also been working on a project I'm calling a a book of moss which is about um, a Victorian Bryologist, a, a moss and lichen expert called Richard Spruce, brilliantly. He was, he was real. <laughs> he was from Yorkshire. And in the 1850s, he went to South America and spent 15 years there at various points spending time with um, Alfred Russell Wallace and, mm. and Bates. And he was collecting a variety of plants for subscribers, but also maintained this lifelong love of, of moss. Yeah. So the collection... It's a a sort of narrative in poems. They're quite, I think, impressionistic. I I use physical spacing on the page in a a very different way from from what I've done normally. And I think really it's about kind of loneliness and obsession and the way that life can be constructed in the the cracks, Mm. much as moss comes up in the cracks. Mm. So each poem is named after a, a different British moss, of which there are, many hundreds and which all have fabulous names like Goblin's Gold and Portuguese Feather Moss and Bird's Foot Wing Moss and you know every, every permutation and it's sort of a Victorian specimen book but it's also a life so that's been great fun to do.
1: Absolutely, I don't think anyone's done moss before there's a, there's a <laughs> line in Alexander Pope well, he says there are many types of men as moss, and there's a little footnote he gives. You know, there's 385 types of moss, or whatever. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> remember that for some reason. So, the children's fiction is something that's becoming more and more important to you. Mm.
2: Yeah. So it was just wanting to try and see if I could actually because mm. I, before I started writing children's fiction, I I hadn't. Done anything longer than a poem, and my poems tend to be quite short anyway. Mm. I see them as sort of little distilled images, and I'm now seeing children's fiction as a kind of zoetrope of these images strung together and kind of creating a movement and hopefully a plot, although that yes. is something that I struggle with quite <laughs> a lot. And so I, I've set the one I'm working on at the moment. It's set in the 18th century, based at Sir John Soane's Museum in London, oh, yeah. uh, mm. to sort of start off with, and then it goes on grand tour throughout France and Italy, borrowing from Stern, and really, it's it's a way of kind of drawing together these preoccupations and interests I have: history, objects, travel, but sort of stringing them into something that I hope might might be of interest to children. It's it's good fun and yeah. a completely different kind of writing for me. Mm.
1: Mm. So we talked a lot about your writing. What about when you're not writing? What are your interests that take you away from yeah from that?
2: Walking. I, I do a lot letter. of walking yeah. in the moors and the dales, which
1: um, generates poetry. Yes, I yeah.
2: Yes. yeah, yeah. You always have to have your phone with you so you can mm. jot anything down. Mm. Yeah, and and music. I play violin and piano, and mm. I love to sing, although that hasn't happened very much mm. um, recently. But I, I like to fill my time with those sort of things. I think. Mm. Um, Really, the pastimes of a Victorian <laughs> lady. So, yeah, maybe I should try and do something contemporary at some point.
1: And what, looking to the future with your writing, what other things are there you want to get into your work or what other things are there you want to try? Drama, for example, or translation or things, things like that? Or, or, or
2: Yeah, well, I'd like to try some translation. I've been trying to learn some Italian, which I enjoy very much, having never really sort of done anything with languages beyond... Mm. GCSE French, which went very well. It went okay, but you know I don't yeah, use yeah. it. I'm enjoying sort of seeing how grammar works. It's it's not something I've ever looked at before, so it it's it's really quite interesting to me. Um, and yeah, I'm starting to think, oh, maybe I could um, could use this in 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 writing. Something I'm going to do, hopefully with with Naoko is um, produce some new versions of the Man'yoshu, which I think are eighth century. A, a sort of collection of, of 1400 poems I think yeah. um, and she's chosen 12 to illustrate so I think that's something we're going to <laughs> try to do um, I'll be doing you know very much versions yeah, <laughs> um, not knowing any Japanese yeah, uh, yeah I think yeah. I think that would be something I'd like to try but yeah. really anything I'd, I'd love to give it a go because having having been sort of dabbling in children's fiction I've realized actually that writing is so much wider than I have always considered it to be
1: yeah.
2: so it's it's sort of quite invigorating in some ways.
1: If a young person came to you wanting advice as a as a poet, is there any any advice you are give
2: them? Well, I heard some good advice recently um, from the children's writer Catherine Rundle, who said, bad writing can be made into good writing, but no writing remains no writing. And I thought, yeah, just do it. Yeah, and that's something I'm trying to apply to my own, you know, my own practice as mm. well. <laughs> Those days when you just think, I can't do it, actually... If you write anything, then it's, it's going to have the potential to become something you are happy with, whereas if you don't write anything at all, then it won't do that. Yeah, so I, th- I think that's probably fairly mm. stellar advice for everyone, really.
1: And if another young person came up to you, perhaps after a reading, and said, as someone did to me, perhaps on more than one occasion, uh, and said, uh, what is poetry? <laughs> <laughs> it's a horrible question, isn't it? Mm. But it's, What's your answer? I, I didn't quite know what to say when I was asked that.
2: Um, I'd say it's a way of looking closely. It's quite a broad definition, but I think that might be mm. just about as as close as as I can get. Yeah. And it's it, yeah, it's, it's a way of focusing mm. through words on images of various sorts. I'd say.
1: Penny Bochtwell, thank you so much for talking. Um, so eloquently about your work. It's been great fun.
0: Thank you. That was Penny Boxall in conversation with John Greening. You can find out more about Penny on her website at pennyboxall.wordpress.com And that concludes episode 403, which was recorded by John Greening and produced by Kona McPhee. Coming up in episode 404, In our Best Writing Advice series, RLF writers share the practical tips that they themselves have found most useful. We hope you'll join us. You've been listening to Writers Aloud, a podcast brought to you by writers for the Royal Literary Fund in London. To subscribe to podcasts and to find out more about the work of the RLF, please visit our website at www.rlf.org.uk. Thanks for listening.